everybody. We're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome to Cato. I'm Laura Odato, Cato's Director of Government Affairs. And today we're going to be having a very exciting panel discussing the merits of the Independent, Independent Payment Advisory Board, IPAB, a significant portion of Obamacare or the uh, Affordable Care Act. So what I'm going to do is briefly introduce each of our panelists and then let them present to you after that. A quick administrative note, um, if you could turn off your cell phones or silence them, I'm sure our speakers would appreciate that. And after everyone's presentations, we should have plenty of time for a question and answer session as well as a luncheon upstairs afterwards. So our first speaker today is Jocelyn Moore, who serves as a legislative director for Senator Jay Rockefeller, where she's responsible for the senator's extensive legislative agenda. She's also staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Healthcare, which Senator Rockefeller chairs. Previously, Jocelyn served as Senator Rockefeller's legislative assistant handling Medicare, Medicaid, children's health, long-term care, and general insurance market reform. She was the Senator's senior advisor on health reform legislation signed into law in 2012 and gained inclusion of significant portions of the health reform bills introduced by Senator Rockefeller in the final law, including language creating the Independent Payment Advisory Board. No, Following Jocelyn will be Len Nichols, who's the director of the Center for Health Policy Research and Ethics and a professor of health policy at George Mason University. His work focuses on improving the performance, sustainability, and equity in the U.S. healthcare system. He has been involved in healthcare reform debates, policy development, and communication for over 18 years, and previously served as the director of health policy program at the New America Foundation, where he contributed to the debate through testimony, briefings, writing, news commentary, and public speaking. Last but not least, we have Cato's own Michael Cannon, who is our director of health policy studies. Previously, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee. He has appeared on ABC, CBS, CNN, CNBC, C-SPAN, Fox News, and NPR, and his articles have been featured in a variety of publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, and the Yale Journal of Health Policy. He is also the co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. And with that, I will turn the podium over to Jocelyn. Thank you, Laura, for that introduction. And it is certainly a pleasure to be here with my esteemed colleagues to talk about a topic that is near and dear to Senator Rockefeller's heart and that has certainly garnered a lot of public attention over the last couple of years, the Independent Payment Advisory Board. So I'd like to spend uh, the bulk of my time talking about uh, the main goals of IPAB. I want to focus on five key points, but I'll also um, you know, talk a little bit about some of the myths that have been out there regarding the Independent Payment Advisory Board and really get at what we were trying to achieve. So with that, I'd like to start with a quote from Senator Rockefeller that I believe aptly um, describes the current debate. Senator Rockefeller said in June of 2009, it is long past time that Medicare payment policy is determined by experts using evidence instead of by the undue influence of special interests. So the first point I'd like to make is that IPAB is an independent board, which you all know, of, of 15 members uh, that are nominated by the president and they must be confirmed by the Senate. By independent, we mean free of the undue influence of special interests. The healthcare lobbyists who spend hundreds of millions of dollars every single year to lobby Congress to keep their piece of the pie, but also to ensure that their piece of the pie grows ever larger and larger. A good example of this is healthcare reform. Uh, there's been a lot of publicity about the fact that our nation's insurers, hospitals, prescription drug companies, providers, they spend about $1.4 million per day lobbying Congress about health care reform. By experts, we mean experienced doctors. And I want to underscore that point. A lot of times we hear about IPAB and we hear, who are these experts? Who are the folks who will be 
uh, charged with looking at Medicare payment policy and charged with improving quality of the program. So it includes doctors, consumers, and patient advocates who share the goal of improving the quality of care provided in the Medicare program. Let me also take a, a moment to underscore the consumer point. One of the key factors of IPAB that is often overlooked is the fact that it has a consumer advisory council. The needs of consumers will be addressed on the panel. The, the consumer advisory council includes 10 members whose specific goal is to make sure that the members of the board know how the policies will impact seniors and, and know the interest of seniors as they move forward with uh, the recommendations. Point number two, and this is a really big point. IPAB is one of many tools in the Affordable Care Act toolbox to improve quality and lower costs. The Affordable Care Act, as many of you know, contains a number of policies aimed at that goal. We reduce inefficient overpayments to private Medicare plans. We also restrain inefficient payments to providers. We improve the preventive benefits that are available to seniors. And we also lower prescription drug costs. All of those things are already in the law. They're already moving forward. They are already helping to reduce Medicare cost growth. IPAB is a targeted backstop. So you take all the things that are already in the law. IPAB is only there if those things do not work to contain Medicare cost growth. And CBO and CMS have already said those things are working. They will continue to work. In fact, IPAB is not even triggered. So recommendations that the IPAB board would make, those are not even triggered for the next decade because we have already achieved the goal of reining in Medicare costs, at least in the 10-year budget window. The next point I'd like to make is um, about the hypothetical. So we've heard a lot about this board, what this board will do, you know, how much in Medicare savings it will actually achieve. CBO has estimated that if IPAB were to be triggered, so again, this is a hypothetical, if it were to be triggered in the next 10 years, it would save roughly $15 billion. Why is that significant? There are a number of plans out there, and many of you know them, to privatize Medicare and provide vouchers to seniors. In comparison, these plans would cut hundreds of billions of dollars out of the Medicare program over the next 10 years. So 15 billion under IPAB versus hundreds of billions of dollars under a voucherized Medicare program. Offering a $7,500 per year voucher to seniors, which does not keep pace with healthcare cost growth, um, will leave seniors on the hook for tens of thousands of dollars for their own medical care. They'll have to pay those expenses out of pocket where Medicare currently pays those expenses today. Seniors will also lose their choice of plan under a privatized Medicare system. Um, and Medicare, as they know, as seniors know it, traditional Medicare will collapse under the weight of this type of, of system. So one thing that I find very odd is that very few have pointed out the undoubted rationing that would actually happen under a privatized Medicare system. Um, instead, folks have focused on uh, the myth that IPAB rations, which I will speak a little bit about in a moment. The third point I'd like to make is that IPAB is absolutely designed to improve the quality of care provided by Medicare for the benefit of seniors. Let's consider a few statistics regarding the care that seniors receive. Many of you will know that the Institute of Medicine just put out a far-reaching 
report about fraud and abuse in the Medicare, Medicaid program, and in national health um, programs broadly. IOM found that our healthcare system squanders $650 billion every single year, roughly 30 cents of every medical dollar, through unneeded care, fraud, and abuse. So what does this mean for seniors? One in seven Medicare patients suffered harm from medical care, and 44% of these errors were found to be preventable. Another factor contributing to waste in healthcare spending and poor patient outcomes is the proportion of clinical decisions made that are not based in any way, shape, or form in evidence. And some estimates put um, looking at evidence and the you know, practice of doing that as low as fit in 10 to 20% of the cases. For example, consistently providing preventive services and interventions according to the best clinical evidence could prevent a majority of deaths from heart disease in the adult population. So again, if we just look at the evidence, if we look at what the evidence tells us, if we base Medicare payment decisions on evidence, we can actually prevent deaths um, and people, people having diseases like heart disease and, and other chronic illnesses that actually lead to death. Another huge problem that the IOM found was that there is a lack of coordinated care. And that lack of coordinated care leads to seniors seeing multiple doctors for the same condition. It also leads to um, a situation where medical records are often not transferred from doctor to doctor, and so care is often duplicated, and the list goes on and on. So I'd like to spend a few moments talking about why IPAB is actually pro-senior. So the first thing I'd say is if and only if Medicare spending targets reach a certain level or exceed a certain acceptable level, if and only if that happens, would IPAB actually make recommendations that Congress um, will then take up to address Medicare spending? And what are those policies? So what will the recommendations entail? What are the things that IPAB is actually going to look at? Number one is better care coordination. As I just mentioned, IOM has pointed to the fact that we don't coordinate care very well in Medicare. Seniors aren't getting the best care, and health outcomes are suffering. Patient care is suffering. The second thing that IPAB could potentially look at are additional ways to eliminate waste, fraud, and abuse. That $750 billion number is staggering. It is staggering. And we haven't in Congress, um, and more broadly, we really haven't gotten an effective handle on waste, fraud, and abuse, so this is another area where IPAB could be helpful. Dollars which should be going to patient care currently are instead lining the pockets of medical providers. Just this week, as many of you may have seen, the federal government um, charged 91 doctors, nurses, and other licensed medical professionals with millions of dollars in fraudulent Medicare billing. That is a problem IPAB is set to address. Thirdly, providing payment incentives to providers for the best practices. What we have today, and I know a lot of arguments have been made and a lot has been said about price controls. What we would argue is that we do have a system of price controls today in the Medicare program, and that system is dictated by providers. We have a Medicare provider price control system. Basically, providers say, you know, they demand the prices that they want Medicare to pay them, whether or not they actually improve patient health. And once providers secure a certain level of reimbursement in the Medicare program, they demand that Medicare always provide at least that level of, of federal support, even if the evidence suggests otherwise. That is not a fair system. That is not an efficient system, and it does not lead to better care for seniors. In fact, seniors suffer under that scenario. 
One primary example that um, I'd like to illustrate was with regard to Medicare competitive bidding for durable medical equipment. And I know Lynn has some particular feelings on this topic. Um, but that was an area we had demonstrated under the Medicare program that competitive bidding would be effective. It would increase the value that seniors get for the dollars that they spend in the Medicare program. Um, but it took years, years for Congress to actually um, make that a part of the Medicare program and expand competitive bidding nationwide. As a result, seniors have gotten millions of dollars uh, back. There have been uh, the, the quality of uh, services provided by durable medical equipment providers has increased drastically. And so that is an, a good example of getting better value for the dollars that seniors are spending in premiums. The last point I'd make is that um, IPAB, under the, the purview of IPAB, is that we can increase the focus on primary care. We started that focus or an increased focus as part of the Affordable Care Act. IPAB is primed to do even more of that and make sure that primary care doctors have the incentives necessary to provide care. The other reason that IPAB is specifically um, pro-senior is that it is prohibited, and I'm gonna underscore this point a couple of times because it, it continues to come up in the debate. IPAB is specifically prohibited by federal law from recommending any policy changes that ration care, that raise taxes, that increase beneficiaries' premiums or cost sharing, that restrict benefits or modify who is eligible for Medicare. I'm gonna say that again. The statute, federal law, prohibits IPAB from recommending any policy changes that ration care, raise taxes, increase beneficiary premiums or cost sharing, restrict benefits, or modify who is eligible for the Medicare program. Fourth point, IPAB is in fact subject to multiple layers of congressional oversight. First, the membership of the board. As I mentioned previously, IPAB and the, boards, the board members have to be approved by Congress, uh, specifically by the Senate. They cannot just be appointed by the president. They don't just magically appear as board members. The Senate does have to um, confirm the members of the board. The second layer of congressional oversight, the board proposals. IPAB will only make mandatory recommendations if Medicare cost growth has exceeded a certain target. I've already talked about this. Again, CBO and CMS say that, that those targets will not be exceeded in the next decade. But if they are at some point in the future, Congress will have to vote up or down on those recommendations. Congress can decide to accept the recommendations or Congress can decide to reject them. The third level of congressional oversight is regards in regards to repeal. Congress can repeal IPAB at any time, at any time. Congress has yet to repeal IPAB, and I want to underscore that point. Um, and, you know, the other thing I would say about that, and a lot has been discussed regarding repeal, no one Congress can bind a future Congress. So Congress absolutely has the authority as the lawmaking body of our government to repeal IPAB if it so chooses. I would also mention that Congress has not um, so chosen to repeal IPAB. And in fact, when IPAB was voted on in the Finance Committee during health reform, um, it was not repealed. It was, in, in fact, strengthened um, and then moved forward to be a part of the final law. The fifth and final point that I would make is that IPAB is of bipartisan origin and has ongoing bipartisan support. Several Medicare policy experts and researchers on both sides of the aisle have laid out alternative governance and policy approaches for Medicare over the years. 
First, the Bipartisan Commission of Medicare, which many of you will know as BROFRIST, um, proposed a board that would be similar to this particular board that we have. I'm sorry, I misnamed the bill. It's the Medicare Preservation and Improvement Act, which is known as BROFRIST. It proposed a board that was very much like IPAB. The Bipartisan Commission on Medicare in the late 1990s also attempted to address this issue. BRO was a part of, of that commission, as well as Bill Thomas in the House. In the late 1990s, a SEC, Security and Exchange Commission model for regulating healthcare was proposed, along with additional options for a new decision-making structure that might be more insulated from stakeholder influence. As I said, the board continues to enjoy ongoing uh, bipartisan support. Former Bush administration Medicare official Mark McClellan has called, strengthening and clarifying the authority and, cap and capacity of IPAB um, a huge priority. And a coalition of economists, including Nobel Prize winners, said the Affordable Care Act contains essentially every cost containment provision policy analysts have considered effective in reducing the rate of medical spending. These provisions include an independent payment advisory board with authority to make recommendations to reduce cost growth and improve quality within both Medicare and the health system as a whole. I would also add that all of the major deficit reduction proposals out there, including Bull Simpson, Rivlin Domenici, and the President's plan call for strengthening IPAB. And finally, in my closing comments, um, one more nod to this type of board is in uh, legislation that Congressman Ryan has proposed, which actually has two um, boards that are uh, health care boards that would be charged at looking at the Medicare program. So with that, I will return to my seat. I look forward to the presentation of my colleagues and welcome any questions. Thank you. Well, thank you, Laura. It's, uh, it's quite a pleasure to follow Jocelyn and to precede Michael, although I can imagine that when Michael's through, I might want one more minute, but I hear we have Q&A, so I'll be fine. Um, <laughs> I would like to begin by saying that, remember, you can learn a lot from who your idea's enemies are, and I would just note that if those whose main priority in life seems to be making sure that no one ever tells any beneficiary no, no matter what, and those whose main priority is keeping taxes absurdly low, and those whose main priority is making a very fine living off taxpayers' overpayment. If they're all opposed, it must be a good idea. That's the way I would think about it. And so, you know, when Michael said, why don't you come and just talk about why we had to have an IPAB, I say first, why not? I will tell you a secret. We have to pay the Chinese back. We borrowed a lot of money. The most humane way to do that is to get healthcare cost growth under control, because it is only by getting healthcare cost growth in the system under control we can begin to get Medicare spending under control, and Medicare is the single biggest contributor to our fiscal stress. Now, a lot of you in this room know we've had a long and sterile debate about how best to control healthcare and Medicare cost growth. Some have come to prefer just one side of the equation. Some prefer to focus on the demand side. By that, I mean those who say, look, if we just had a budget or we just had vouchers and it said this is how much we're going to spend no matter what, then prices would magically adjust and life would be fine and spending would go down. That approach, while it has certain merits, does indeed shift all the risk to the beneficiaries and ultimately to the providers who would be conflicted in how to deal with a limited package over time. 
The polar extreme are folks who focus only on the supply side, and in the limit, in the extreme, what they tend to advocate is single payer, by which they really mean price controls for the whole system, and basically then command employment of the doctors to provide the services that we want at the prices picked by the government. And that very command and control system is precisely why it'll never happen in America. We're never going to agree with that. But I notice all the people who support single payer tend to live along the coast. You know, it's very popular in California and Maine. And I think it might be because those people know that if it got really bad, they could get away really fast because they're next to water, right? The rest of us would be stuck here. So single payer is the alternative extreme. Look, I'm going to tell you a secret. We need to do both. We're going to need both demand-side and supply-side intervention to pull this off. But we don't have to go as extreme as either of those trying to rely solely on one tool would go. And in fact, what the Affordable Care Act does is it imposes, in my view, the best idea from the demand-side controllers, and that is targets, and sets those targets in, in a place where they're obvious and where you can deal with them. But it also supplies supply-side tools short of price controls. In fact, the amazing thing about this bunch of Democrats who passed this law, unlike the last law that was discussed back 100 years ago when my hair was red and my beard was red and I had more hair on my top than on my beard, and so, you know, life was good back then, that bill was really about setting a budget. Well, this bunch is really about trying to move away from hard budgets, trying to move away from price controls, trying to move toward a much more rational payment system. Instead of 8,000 CPT codes and 458 MSDRGs, let's move to a world in which you pay for big, big bundles, in fact, all the way up to maybe a global payment for a patient's care and health over a given year. Those tools are what's in the ACA to make the demand-side targets actually work. And those tools are exactly what Jocelyn just talked about, accountable care organizations, bundling. What's interesting about the application of those tools from this law as it's playing out in our country is how much multi-payer interest there is in adopting the same tools. In fact, there are now more private sector medical homes than there are government pilot medical homes because the private sector has figured out this actually makes a lot of sense. And by the way, if the clinicians know that the Medicare program is moving in this direction, then they're much more open to payment reform from the private side. And so in a sense, they are enhancing and catalyzing each other, which is exactly what the point of the law is about. And also why, as Jocelyn said, the current um, cost experience exceeds our wildest dreams of what we thought it would do. And so it's looking kind of decent and we hadn't really got started. Now, but let's think seriously about going forward here. Our policy choices are basically two, at least the ones that our politicians have given us. One, we could turn the Medicare program over to private health plans. That would be an option. And let me just say, some of my best friends work for and run health plans. I'm not opposed to health plans. I actually think they're pretty darn useful. But they can't do this by themselves, and there's a simple reason they can't, and it's called local market power of hospitals and physician groups. Talk to Karen Ignani, who's the chief lobbyist for the America's Health Insurance Plan, and ask her about Sutter in Northern California, or for that matter, Mass General in Boston, or for that matter, 35 more we could all name. Cleveland Clinic and Mayo come to mind. Ask what a multiple of Medicare they charge private payers. 
and ask how negotiations go every year when health plans try to talk to these guys. They know their reputation is such that no employer and no person is going to want a health package without them, and they extract the surplus from the plan. Plans can't do this by themselves. That's kind of the point. The alternative path we're offered in the election is to give providers the tools they need so that providers can lead this cost growth containment activity over, over time. That's the, that, those are the choices that we face. Either you give it to plans and wish them good luck, or you give it to providers and underneath the system make it far better. I will point out IPAB is not new. It has been around, as, as Jocelyn said, lots of times. I actually, one of the people who came up with the proposal along with physician Robert Berenson and uh, colleague Tom Emsweiler, we advocated something like this long before the election. Many experienced observers and former uh, administrators of the Healthcare Financing Administration, now CMS, have long reported and lamented how successful lobbying prevents good policy from being implemented. I could go through the cabbage demonstration in the 90s, lung volume replacement surgery. Um, my favorite example is how the people who uh, run uh, device companies killed the Office of Technology Assessment in the 90s. Let me ask you a question. How much do we spend as a country on medical devices? Yeah, that's right. No one knows. I can take to the third, I can take to the third decimal point what we spend on hospitals, doctors, drugs, nursing homes, home health agencies. Device guys are so smart, they hide it. They're brilliant. Okay? And what the Office of Technology Assessment and what all kinds of comparative effectiveness stuff is about is trying to figure out what's the value compared to the cost. It's hard to do if you don't know what stuff costs. And we don't know what it costs because doctors don't know what it costs because device companies run gag clauses into hospitals which buy the devices. <clears throat> so fundamentally, we are in the dark completely. The only way to get at this is to require that information to be made public. So the um, IPAB in the ACA is really a manifestation of, I would say, Senate Democrats who, after all, put it there stood firm against criticism and strengthened it, actually, in the end game, um, because they were concerned that folks thought those Senate Democrats weren't serious about cost control. So in many ways, it came to be seen and, in fact, is a manifestation of a seriousness of purpose, which, I would agree, has been not always present in our nation's history. I will notice it's the Independent Payment Advisory Board Keyword advisory. It does not supersede Congress. It supplements Congress by forcing action. But it forces action only if two things occur. One is healthcare cost growth has to exceed the target, GDP plus one, in the Medicare program, and the CPI medical component has to exceed the overall CPI. Both things had to be true before they have the power to recommend something. That recommendation has 60 days scrutiny of Congress. Now, I admit 60 days sounds like a short time when you think about the greatest deliberative body on the planet. But if they know that, in fact, if they don't act within 60 friggin' days, then this thing will become policy, I suspect some of them might pay attention a little quicker than normal, and that will indeed engender debate, which is the point. It forces action. Congress has the power to say we don't like it. Congress has the power to propose something else. And Congress has the power to override it if they really hate it. 
But the point is it forces Congress to deal with the reality that we got to pay the Chinese back. And the smartest way to do that is through payment reform. So finally, um, I will just say a word about some of the rhetoric that is sometimes used to get people excited. I know it's an election year, and that's what uh, election years are for, but road to serfdom. I mean, I, I, would, I would suggest that, you know, we don't live in a pure democracy. We live in a republic. We consciously chose to construct a constitutional republic. That means we elect people to do the public business. That means we give them some deference for a span of limited time. And if we don't like what they do, we throw them out. That's the great thing about having scheduled elections. I will just say sometimes a rhetoric of freedom can be used to stifle policy development that promotes the will of the people. Elections are to make big choices. And we face, I would argue, the biggest choice we've faced in my adult lifetime. I can remember Goldwater, but you know, just barely. This choice is basically we're either going to use demand-side tools for cost containment on, that is, set a budget, set a voucher, get out of the way, <coughs> or we're going to use both sides of tools. This choice is we're going to do spending cuts alone to balance the budget, or we're going to do spending cuts and tax increases. Those are the choices. Given those choices, we will elect people. Given the people we elect, they will make choices about how to do that, and IPAB is a perfectly constitutional tool, just like the Base Closings Commission, which has become pretty darn popular as we go forward. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I want to thank uh, Len and Jocelyn and Laura and all of you for coming here to talk about this important topic. I think that to understand IPAB, the most important thing to understand is the problems that IPAB is meant to fix. Uh, Medicare has dramatically, since it was enacted in 1965, has dramatically increased the costs and reduced the quality of healthcare in many ways. And the federal government has proven itself incompetent to provide efficient health insurance to the elderly. But you don't have to take this libertarian's word for it. Listen to the health services researchers and government agencies that are uniformly supportive of the program, for all I know. Uh, in a 2008 study of Medicare's effects published in the Journal of Public Economics, economists Amy Finkelstein and Robin McKnight wrote, quote, our results suggest that in its first 10 years, the establishment of universal health insurance for the elderly had no discernible impact on elderly mortality, end quote. The best available evidence, which comes from the Dartmouth Atlas of Healthcare, Dartmouth Medical School, suggests that one-third of Medicare spending, we're talking about a program that spends maybe $450 billion a year, one-third of Medicare spending provides no value whatsoever. And that is just one category of waste that doesn't even count the low-value care in Medicare. The Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, these are the folks who advise Congress on where to set Medicare's price controls. They wrote in 2003, quote, in the Medicare program, the payment system is largely neutral or negative toward quality. All providers meeting basic requirements are paid the same regardless of the quality of service provided. At times, providers are paid even more when quality is worse, such as when complications occur as the result of error. Peter Orzag was President Obama's Director of the Office of Management and Budget. He wrote in 2011, 
that Medicare literally encourages, this is not a direct quote, Medicare literally encourages uh, unnecessary hospital readmissions by penalizing hospitals if they deliver high quality care that reduces readmissions. Uh, Len and his colleagues in 2008 wrote that Medicare, quote, is not nearly as inventive or catalytic a buyer of health care as it could and must be. Even minor reforms are stymied. Medicare has been unable to promote accountability among providers for the health outcome on the patient. And demonstration programs and pilot programs that Medicare has launched over the years uh, either routinely fail to increase quality or reduce costs, or even if they succeed, they're not taken program-wide because every quality-improving or cost-reducing innovation that Medicare could adopt is going to pose a threat to the revenue stream of some low-quality or high-cost provider, and they lobby Congress to kill that, that innovation. The, now, Medicare supporters lay the blame at the feet of Congress, but congressional interference is not some alien feature that's imposed <laughs> on Medicare by Medicare's enemies. <laughs> congressional interference is an inherent part of Medicare. That's what government-run health care looks like. So the creation of the Independent Payment Advisory Board, which is supposed to get around congressional influence, which is supposed to reduce Congress's influence, is really an admission that Congress is not competent to manage America's health care sector and that the Medicare program has been a failure. Now, we're meeting today in the Hayek Auditorium here at the Cato Institute, and students of Friedrich Hayek, Hayek would neither be surprised to hear that government has failed to deliver high-quality, low-cost health care, nor that supporters blame politics rather than their own faulty economic ideas. That's because we've heard it all before. What Hayek wrote about comprehensive economic planning in his 1944 book, The Road to Serfdom, also applies to planning a single sector of the economy. Hayek wrote, quote, it may be the unanimously expressed will of the people that its parliament should prepare a comprehensive economic plan, yet neither the people nor its representatives need therefore be able to agree on any particular plan. The inability of democratic assemblies to carry out what seems to be a clear mandate of the people will inevitably cause dissatisfaction with democratic institutions. Parliaments come to be regarded as ineffective talking shops, unable to, or incompetent to carry out the tasks for which they have been chosen. Compare that to the Medicare excuse factory that we've been listening to for the past few years. Tom Daschle was a Senate Majority Leader, and he was also Barack o President Obama's first pick to head up uh, President Obama's health reform effort. Daschle wrote, quote, or, uh, while, quote, there is a general agreement on basic reform principles the traditional legislative process has failed to deliver. Professional expertise and trustworthiness, these are qualities that Congress lacks when it comes to health care. In Congress, every decision is political. It was almost as though he was lifting that right out of Hayek. University of Chicago Public Health Professor Harold Pollack wrote, quote, we must reduce congressional micromanagement of Medicare policy. Congress seems too screwed up and fragmented to address our most pressing problems. Peter Orzag, uh, blames polarization and legislative gridlock. Len Nichols uh, and his co-authors have written uh, that, quote, Medicare has been hamstrung by congressional micromanaging. Hayek continued, the conviction grows that if efficient planning is to be done, the direction must be taken out of politics and placed in the hands of experts, permanent officials or independent autonomous bo bodies. Fast forward to today. Dashiell, there is a strong argument to be made that appointed experts would make better health care decisions than politicians. Orzag, we need to, quote, take some of the politics out of, end quote, government direction of the health care sector. 
also Orzag, quote, a significant part of the response to polarization and gridlock must involve creating more independent institutions that reduce the power of elected officials and therefore make our government somewhat less accountable to voters. Uh, more Hayek, dissatisfaction with democracy, quote, will evoke stronger and stronger demands that the government or some single individual should be given powers to act on their own responsibility. The belief is becoming more and more widespread that if things are to get done, the responsible authorities must be freed from the fetters of democratic procedure. The cry for an economic dictator is a characteristic stage in the movement toward planning. Dashiell, we need an independent and unelected federal health board whose, quote, recommendations would have teeth. Pollock, despite many reasons for caution, I'm becoming more of a believer in an imperial presidency in domestic policy. <laughs> Orzag, certain aspects of representative government can end up posing serious problems. In other words, radical as it sounds, we need to counter the gridlock of our political institutions by making them a bit less democratic. What we need are ways around our politicians. We might be a healthier democracy if we were a slightly less democratic one. Perhaps the most dramatic example of this idea is the Independent Payment Advisory Board. Now, just how undemocratic is IPAB? Well, if you listen to IPAB supporters, the board sounds innocuous enough. It's going to be a board of doctors. If Medicare spending rises too quickly, IPAB will make recommendations for restraining spending growth. There's a cap on how much IPAB can cut Medicare spending. If IPAB's, IPAB's proposals will be limited to changes in Medicare payment rates, if Congress doesn't like those proposals, it can issue its own. IPAB cannot affect Medicare coverage or enrollees' access to care. In fact, the law explicitly prohibits IPAB from rationing care or raising taxes or changing Medicare coverage or cost sharing. And IPAB is no different from the Defense-Based Closure and Realignment Commission, which has been fairly successful. Peter Orzag is closer to the truth than most IPAB supporters. He wrote that IPAB has, quote, an enormous amount of potential power, end quote. So much that, quote, Congress saw the board as usurping its power. Orzag also wrote, quote, the default is now switched in a very important way. The default is that IPAB's policies will take effect. And when you actually read the law, you begin to see that Orzag understates the case. Doctors cannot constitute a majority of the board. The statute is ex explicit about that. IPAB won't be making re recommendations. It will be issuing laws. Congress will have very little power to amend or reject those laws. Citizens will have no power to challenge those laws in court. IPAB faces no cap on how much Medicare spending it can cut. Despite those explicit statutory provisions, IPAB will have the power to ration care, to impose taxes, to place conditions on federal grants to states, and to regulate and ration care even for those not enrolled in Medicare programs, so long as IPAB's edicts are related to the Medicare program. Uh, all of IPAB's powers will revert to a single individual, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, if the president fails to appoint or Congress, the Senate fails to confirm any IPAB members, or if IPAB members cannot agree on a proposal when they're required to issue one. Uh, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act limits Congress's ability to repeal IPAB to a seven-month window in 2017 and requires a three-fifths majority in both chambers to do it. And if Congress fails to repeal IPAB through that specified procedure, then according to the statute, Congress loses any ability to amend or block IPAB proposals. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act literally requires the Secretary to implement all IPAB proposals as written, even if Congress tries to supersede them. Now, what do I mean when I say IPAB will be making laws? With only three narrow exceptions, the, the uh, PPACA requires the Secretary of Health and Human Services to implement all IPAB edicts. 
Those three exceptions are if Congress supersedes an IPAD proposal, if during that seven-month window in 2017, Congress passes a specifically worded resolution to repeal IPAB, or, or three, if uh, the growth in national health expenditures exceeds per capita, Medicare per capita spending growth, and that can't happen in two consecutive years. Unless one of those exceptions holds, IPAB's word is law. There's almost no accountability because while, because the statute severely restricts Congress's ability to block IPAB proposals or to offer a substitute for the proposal. If Congress and the President do, and Congress and the President do not enact a substitute that reaches the same budgetary result as IPAB's proposal, or if uh, they do not waive the, those rules with a three-fifths majority in the Senate, then IPAB's legislative proposal automatically becomes law. Peter Orzag boasts that Congress and the President will have less power to stop IPAB's proposals than they had to stop BRAC's proposals. Unlike BRAC and uh, executive branch agencies that are subject to the Administrative Procedure Act, IPAB does not need to obtain public input on or, on or presidential review of its proposals before they become law. Unlike BRAC, simple congressional disapproval of IPAB proposals is not an option. Unlike with other agencies, uh, IPAB's authorizing statute explicitly bars ex administrative and judicial review of the Secretary's implementation of IPAB proposals. What about rationing care? Well, the power to change Medicare payment rates is the power to ration care. We've often heard that, well, all, that, all that's happening under Obamacare or uh, with IPAB is they're changing the amount that Medicare pays providers. It's not going to affect beneficiaries. Well, if that's the case, we should just pay providers nothing. If their uh, supply uh, if is, uh, of medical services purely inelastic uh, with respect to price, but of course that's not the case. Now it is true. So the power to ration care uh, is uh, I'm sorry. The power to change Medicare payment rates is the power to ration care, but IPAB's powers are not limited to that. It's true. The authorizing statute states that IPAB's proposals, quote, shall not include any recommendation to ration care, raise revenues, or Medicare beneficiary premiums under certain sections of the uh, Social Security Act, increase Medicare beneficiary cost sharing, or otherwise restrict uh, benefits or modify eligibility criteria. These limitations are explicit, they are clear, and they are functionally meaningless. One problem is that the PPACA does not define what the word ration means. It leaves that task to IPAB and shields IPAB's definition from any meaningful review. So if IPAB decides that rationing only occurs when Medicare refuses to cover a given service, it could still deny access to, uh, to presumably covered services simply by setting Medicare's prices so low that no provider will deliver them. President Obama acknowledged this when he said that IPAB, quote, basically identifies best practices and say, let's use the purchasing power of Medicare and Medicaid to help institutionalize all these good things that we do, end quote. So the whole point is that IPAB decides what practices are best and stops paying for what isn't. But the larger problem is that these, these prohibitions have no enforcement mechanism. If IPAB issued a proposal that explicitly refused to cover, say, lung volume reduction surgery, or imposed a tax on providers or increased enrollee cost sharing, what's to stop it? If your answer is, well, Congress could block those proposals, then you've just admitted that IPAB can ration care or raise taxes. Because if the mechanism for blocking prohibited proposals is the same as the mechanism for blocking permitted proposals, then there are no prohibited proposals. If your answer is, well, IPAB stepped outside of its statutory authority, so Congress and the courts could block it by stepping outside the statutory rules protecting IPAB, IPAB proposals, 
then Congress or the uh, courts could set aside those protections with regard to all IPAB proposals, merely by declaring that in their judgment uh, an IPAB proposal rations care. Not only, not only would that be manifestly contrary to the statute, but one could even see IPAB still getting away with it. So as surely as IPAB can cut Medicare payment rates, it can deny coverage for specific procedures or raise taxes or increase cost sharing. When Mitt Romney said that IPAB is an unelected board that's going to tell people ultimately what kind of treatments they can have, the Los Angeles Times responded uh, calling it, quote, an erroneous myth debunked consistently by independent fact checkers. Jay Bhattacharya is a prominent health economist and a professor of medicine and economics at Stanford University. He responded, there isn't a single honest, this is a quote, there isn't a single honest health economist out there who agrees with the LA Times on this one. The, as far as a cap on how much IPAB can cut, the statute requires IPAB to propose cuts that, quote, will re result in a net reduction in total Medicare program spending in the implementation year that is at least equal to the applicable savings target. That is, in other words, that is a floor on the amount of cuts that IPAP can propose, not a ceiling. So IPAP can propose unlimited Medicare cuts. Uh, as I mentioned, the, all of IPAP's powers revert to the secretary. Uh, the repeal procedure in IPAB, we've heard from the administration and other supporters of IPAB that this is just one option. This is just one way of repealing IPAB, the procedure that's laid out in the statute. And Congress can repeal IPAB at any time using the normal, the regular legislative process. Well, of course, that is the case. That is not what Obamacare says. Obamacare says a joint resolution is required to discontinue the board, not optional, but required. So only in Washington, D.C. could a statute stating that a joint resolution is required to discontinue a board mean that a joint resolution is not required to <laughs> discontinue that board. And the structure of the PPACA clearly shows that it attempts to deny Congress the power to repeal IPAB outside the specified joint resolution procedure. If the PPACA, as the administration says, merely establishes one way for Congress to repeal the board, there would have been no need for the statute to say that the Secretary is relieved of her duty to implement IPAB proposals if Congress, is follow, if Congress follows the specified repeal procedure because any method of repeal would relieve the Secretary of that duty. And Congress loses if Congress fails to repeal IPAB through that uh, specified procedure during that narrow seven-month window in 2017. Then as of 2019, Congress loses any ability to affect any IPAB proposal, even if Congress tries to supersede a proposal that IPAB has put forward. The statute still requires the Secretary of Health and Human Services to implement that proposal as written. This is something that no one has picked up on uh, in, uh, in, in all of the analyses that have been done of IPAB, and it's because everybody looked at the statute and saw the word and, but thought it was an or. In fact, and for reasons I hope that I, uh, we can get into during the discussion period, the statute says explicitly and cl clearly that unless Congress repeals, that, uh, repeals IPAB during that specified procedure, it, it loses the ability to influence any IPAB proposal after 2019. So in conclusion, I would say that liberals should be as outraged by IPAB as anyone else. Because just as IPAB's lawmaking powers can be used to advance ideas that you support, they can be used to advance ideas that you hate. 
Obama advisor David Cutler has proposed that IPAB could, could, could simply convert Medicare into a Paul Ryan-style voucher program without congressional approval. This is a supporter of IPAB who has suggested this. Now, so, so think, if Mitt Romney wins in November, all he would need to do is, one, recess appoint a new HHS secretary. That, ha that can happen without congressional approval. And if there is no, uh, if there are no IPAB members, all of IPAB's powers fall to the secretary. So recess appoint uh, an HHS secretary, which he could do without congressional approval. And two, enlist the support of just one third of one chamber of Congress to sustain his veto of any legislation that would try to supersede that IPAB pr uh, proposal. Uh, and, and Mitt Romney can turn Medicare into a voucher program. If President Romney clears those hurdles, his Secretary of Health and Human Services will be required by law to convert Medicare into that voucher program, and citizens could not challenge it in court. If it hopes to over, uh, to, if it, or if it helps to overcome your devotion to President Obama or to the Affordable Care Act, just think of IPAB as a voucher board. If all that sounds absurd, it is. IPAB is not just unconstitutional, it's anti-constitutional. It's probably the most unconstitutional law Congress has ever passed. Uh, of course Cong can, Congress can repeal it or the courts can strike it down as unconstitutional, but until either of those things happen, this is the form of government we now have. IPAB is not a Democratic or Republican issue. It's not left versus right. It's about whether we're going to have a government of laws or a government of men. I thank you and I look forward to your questions. So what I want to do for, for Q&A is get to all of your questions and then give our speakers a chance to address anything that they want to bring up that might not have been brought up in Q&A. So since we're live streaming, if you can wait for a microphone to ask your question, um, state your name and affiliation if you'd like to, and last but not least, please ask a question. So with that, does anyone have questions for any of our panelists? Just in the front. I hate to go first. Is this on? Uh, first, I have a confession to make. I'm on Medicare. I am a licensed clinical independence psychotherapist. And as far as uh, I remember when DRGs came into being when I was working at Harborview Medical Center. So I've done health and mental health and what have you. Where I'm a bit confused about this, and I will say that we are not discuss we are talking about here, and I don't agree with this, this panel, but we used to talk about this a lot where I've worked, and even now with patients. I'm not a consumer, I'm a patient. How long are you gonna keep someone alive? Is it rationing? I don't think so. It's when, and I'll pose this question, Ms. Moore, Nichols, I know Mr. Cannon's gonna say. Um, when family members have a parent who already has a DNR, who already has the living will, who already has all the paperwork necessary saying, I don't want any more treatment. And the family members say, no, there's the issue of what will the hospital or nursing home do because the Obama healthcare program did not include tort reform, which puts a lot of docs, if I were in private practice, on the line. So how do you address this issue Yes, we need to start talking about death and dying. If 
uh, Mitt Romney's elected, Michael, you talk about a voucher program. I mean, Medicare is okay, but you also have the Medicare Advantage plan. And they're two different systems of payment and reimbursement. So how, one, how will you address family members, and I've got everything in place, who won't abide by their parent or whomever's wishes in the hospital, nursing home, or at home with this so-called group, which sounds like it's in place, and two, how does the voucher program, I'm confused when you say, it's either gonna be a vouchers or it's gonna be iPad instead of having medical iris or whatever. Uh, it's, and have three, no person suffering from a mental illness could get four months inpatient treatment at the Mayo Clinic unless they were an elected official for the treatment of bipolar illness or what have you that, that the citizens are paying that money for. So I guess I'll look from the mental health perspective. You don't get that kind of care. Perfect. Nobody's going to pay Let's give our panelists a chance to answer this. No, it's long, but this <laughs> is a very confusing, and I have mixed feelings about this. So um, there's probably no issue that is more difficult than trying to be, um, I would say, reasonable about this uh, advanced illness end-of-life stuff. And um, I think it's pretty clear that and when some people tried to have a conversation about it, it, it got demagogued pretty seriously. I will say um, that demagoguery was unfortunate, death panels, but both parties do it. I mean, you know, it happens at whoever proposes it, the other side. So therefore, in my opinion, the only way to have an adult conversation here is to kind of lock arms and agree we're going to have a conversation on a bipartisan basis. There's no way to do it. If one party proposes it, then the other party will demagogue it. So you almost have to have some kind of behind-the-scenes agreement, okay, now we're going to be adults. I don't know that I would bet that's going to happen in the next 30 days, but I do think that it's likely that the combination of the fiscal cliff, the examples of Greece, et cetera, and the reality of our long-term budget situation, if we ever had a set of conditions that would produce that adulthood, um, those conditions are coming at us pretty fast with no way out. So I think indeed it's plausible. Now, how do you deal with it actually in the clinical world? I mean, you, you know it quite well. You've lived it, seen it up close and personal. The fundamental problem is a combination of families not wanting to give up, even though the patient may very well have decided to do DNR or whatever, and then the clinician fear of repercussions if, uh, malpractice, et cetera, and so forth. So obviously, again, the malpractice solution's got to be a bipartisan solution, and the techniques we use to give, ultimately, dignity to the people involved have to be blessed and protected by both parties. I don't know how to do it any other way, and I think we have to, but I don't think we can until we get past this election. I'd just associate myself, and thank you uh, for that question. I'd associate myself with the comments that Lynn has made. I would add a couple of, of points, and I you know, completely agree with you. My parents are on uh, Medicare as well, and I, I think that you know, the issue of 
advanced care plan planning is fundamentally a consumer choice issue and what are people's in a patient choice issue and what are um, patients' interests, what do people want to have happen? And so it is unfortunate that, as Lynn mentioned, the two, the board and decisions about advanced care planning have been confused. Um, this board cannot make coverage uh, decisions. And so I would say, since Senator Rockefeller is also very concerned about advanced care planning, it just so happens that West Virginia is one of the states that leads in terms of advanced care planning and making sure that people do have um, living wills and advanced directives. So Senator Rockefeller, there is an entirely different proposal that he offered on advanced care planning. It's advanced, advanced Care Planning and uh, Compassionate Care Act. He and Senator Collins have introduced that particular legislation in every Congress uh, for the last, uh, I don't know how many, a it's few, been so yeah. many, quite a few, uh, but I, we, we agree, yes, we agree, and as Lynn said, it really has to ha happen that folks lock arms and decide we are going to make sure that whatever patients decide, what, whatever patients' wishes are, and the government shouldn't get involved in what those decisions are, but we should honor them, and so that is part of um, this discussion is honoring those, those well, not the IPAB discussion, but the discussion about advanced care planning is honoring patient choice. Um, I agree with Len, this is uh, one of the more difficult issues we face in health policy, in, in health care. Uh, my answer is the preferences matter, or preferences vary when it comes to intensity of uh, treatment at the end of life. You know, how much you want doctors to do to try to keep you alive. Some people want lots, some people a lot less. Financial incentives matter. F financial incentives are going to influence how much care you want at the end of life. It's going to influence how much care your, uh, the, the, your doctors or the hospital is going to want to provide to you at the end of life. Uh, Medicare's uh, fee-for-service payment system creates a financial incentive for uh, hospitals and uh, doctors to provide more and more care at the end of life. That's why we have uh, so much excessive end-of-life intervention. Other payment systems discourage that. If you have a one-size-fits-all payment system, then it's either going to encourage a lot or it's going to encourage very little uh, end-of-life intervention or so, uh, uh, somewhere in between. And because preferences vary, that means someone is going to lose out. And that's what everyone is demagoguing, You're both left and right, everyone is demagoguing when it comes to Medicare reform is you're going to lose out. You're not going to get what you want. You're not going to get the care that you want. But it seems to me that the way, I don't know why we would expect if Medicare comes up, uh, if, if Congress has come up with one set of financial incentives that doesn't seem to be working, a lot of people don't like, why we would think that IPAB would come up with uh, a better one-size-fits-all set of financial incentives. I, it seems to me that someone's going to get hurt either way. And if you, what you want to do is match resources to patient preferences, then what you need to do is you need to give patients a choice. You need to let them enroll in a, in a plan that uh, if, they, if they want heroic end-of-life interventions, uh, provides financial incentives for that with maybe a fee-for-service payment system. Or if they want much more conservative treatment at the end of life, they want to be kept comfortable, they want to die at home, these sorts of things, then they will, be allowed, they will have the choice of enrolling in a health plan that, that emphasizes that mode of end-of-life care. Uh, but at, again, if you try to impose a one-size-fits-all set of financial incentives uh, on 
the entire healthcare sector, which is what Medicare does and what IPAB uh, attempts to do, then somebody's going to get hurt. <clears throat> Let's do that offline, maybe. Yes, there's a question in the second row there, please. Um, Tip Ghosh um, with uh, Teach Health Policy and Medical Management at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Um, I want to, let's say um, we do get rid of IPAB. Um, I want to sort of put the question on payment reform in general. So if we were to design a system that had more market-based um, incentives to change um, and allow for physicians uh, and preserve the doctor-patient relationship, um, what kinds of policy options would we be looking at? Because it's, um, as Len suggested, there's basically either you change the demand or the supply. So if you're going to affect the supply rather than having a one-size-fits-all approach, what are some options that we have to allow physicians um, and hospitals to actually design some innovations around reducing cost? Well, I'm willing to predict here today we will get rid of IPAP. It will be repealed. Congress, as Jocelyn said, cannot bind future Congresses. Those uh, restrictions in the law are inoperative. They can be ignored. They will be ignored. And Congress uh, will repeal IPAP for the same reason that Congress has ground up and spat out every attempt by Medicare to improve the quality of care or to reduce the cost of care. It's because those innovations and IPAB present a threat to the revenue streams of some, spe some special interest or other, and, and they're the ones uh, who are going to lobby the hardest and they're going to prevail in Congress. When that happens, hopefully before you know, that happens, but, but when that happens, I think the only uh, hope we have of, of containing Medicare spending, containing the growth of Medicare spending, reducing the cost of health care, which is something separate, and improving the quality of care is to move to a system where the patients control the money and the patients have an incentive to economize on care, which are two things that we don't have right now, either in Medicare or in the uh, under 65 population for that matter. And in Medicare, the way you do that is you make Medicare look more like Social Security, where instead of giving subsidizing seniors with a government-prescribed set of health benefits where the government has to come up with the prices for hundreds of thousands of, uh, of goods and services across the country, you give seniors a check and you trust them to spend that on their health care. Uh, and, and you give sick seniors bigger checks, you give low-income seniors bigger checks. But Social Security doesn't tell seniors how to, where to eat. It doesn't tell them uh, where to buy their food. It doesn't tell them where to live. It doesn't tell them what restaurants they can go to. It trusts them to spend that money themselves. Uh, and seniors have an incentive to economize because they, they get to keep what they don't spend. I think the same thing will uh, apply in healthcare, and we will get lower cost, higher quality care as a result. We're just not going to get it until we move in that direction. Consumer incentives are important, and they're part of the solution if we're going to move in that direction. But um, they cannot be the only tool because uh, people who get older basically uh, sometimes lose cognitive abilities and it gets complicated. Now they can have family maybe, unless the family's not there and so forth. There's lots of ways to solve the problem. But, but so consumer incentives are part of it. But you really ask a question about how to get more provider engagement. And that has to do, I think, with 
giving them tools or more precisely making sure tools are available. They may or may not avail themselves of certain tools. But it seems to me, and in particular I picked up on the phrase you used, preserve the doctor-patient relationship. There is a lot of concern about that uh, in the nation at large, in life in general. And it comes down to, I think, uh, fear of change. And that change is, is, is constantly being thrown at them as, okay, you're the problem, docs. You spend too much money. You allow too many patients to do too much stuff. But in fact, of course, um, doctors' income is only 10% of total spend. Total spend on docs, only 20% of the total healthcare dollar. You do have this little thing we call the doctor's pen, and you do control maybe 80% of it. But fundamentally, what you take home is such a small piece. So how do we incentivize the right stuff while preserving that patient engagement that you went to med school for? I agree with Michael. We don't want one-size-fits-all. I disagree with Michael. The ACA is not about one-size-fits-all. The ACA is about moving as far away from one-size-fits-all as you can go and still preserve the existing institutions. It's not as radical as it could have been because they wanted to keep employer-sponsored, private insurance out there, keep Medicare and Medicaid, but make them better. Not as fast as some of us would like, but moving too fast creates even more fear. So I think the key to life here is, is making clear to physicians, specifically, but clinicians in general, you are the backbone of this reform. It's not going to work without you. We can't cut payments so much you drop out. And that's the fundamental limit on, I mean, whatever is in the law, that's the limit on what the cuts can be. But what we want to do is make sure you don't run screaming to join a hospital and, in essence, team up against us. The last thing we want is for physicians to believe they can only make a living if they're employed by a hospital. That'd be a big mistake. There are some who would push them that way. I would not. So I think giving you information tools, giving you um, the ability to negotiate what a concept with all payers in a given community, including Medicare and Medicaid, but also the private people, giving you access to data. You know, it's really hard for a clinician, any clinician in the stream, to manage total cost of care if you don't know what the hell total cost of care is. You can't know total cost of care unless the payers tell you. So there can be some rules that can make it actually better for you to help design the system. I would also say the final thing is focus on community. Michael's probably never heard me say this. I, I, I worry a lot about the one-size-fits-all impulse. I disagree that the ACA is about it. I think the ACA is trying to move away from it. But I certainly agree right now there are people who run the Medicare program who would like it to be one-size-fits-all. Okay, we can't do that. We need when the king of Spain ruled the new world, it took six months for a letter to go from Madrid to Havana and back. As a consequence, he had to delegate. What we need to do is allow communities to work out the way they want to make it work. And you know what? Every human being I've ever met. Republican, Democrat, independent, libertarian or otherwise crazy, just every human being wants it to work where they live and work. And so you get them in a room, around a table, all the stakeholders, they'll work it out. Medicare should join that party, not fight it.
at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I'll just add that I will associate myself again with everything that Lynn has said, um, and I will not concede the point that IPAB is going to be repealed. But I, I would also say that I think we're focusing on the, the wrong metric. I think that IPAB is bit, but a drop in the bucket. It's a backstop to all the wonderful things that, um, what we would say wonderful things that the Affordable Care Act is already doing to integrate care. And the other thing, to your point about private sector and market-based provisions, a lot of those integrated care models came from the private sector. So when you're talking about ACOs and medical homes and the list goes on and on, those are private sector models that have shown uh, to improve healthcare outcomes over time that the government has now said, look, those models work. Let's use them in the Medicare program. And so again, those are the things that are shifting Medicare spending, that are moving the ball forward. And CBO and CMS have already said, look, we've made Medicare more efficient. And as Lynn said earlier, we haven't even fully implemented those, those provisions. The, the other point I would make is IPAB also, where it is, um, involved, it does have the ability to increase provider payment. That's something that gets lost in this debate. So to the extent that uh, we are looking at ways to, you know, protect the patient, um, the doctor-patient relationship, there are areas, primary care being a primary one, um, where we need to do more. We need to provide greater incentives. IPAB does have that ability um, to actually increase uh, provider reimbursement. So. I think that your question is the right one, and I would say that we are already doing um, exactly what, what you outlined. Uh, we'll take one last question from the gentleman in the yellow tie over there. Hello, my name is Josh Esses, and I'm an intern at the Institute for Humane Studies. I have a question for you, Ms. Moore. I'd like to revisit the quote you started with. It's about time we're uh, letting experts make decisions instead of lobbyists. I think that's interesting on two fronts. One, why is there this faith in experts? How can they possibly assimilate all of the dispersed knowledge necessary to determine what policies and procedures should be covered by the uh, Medicare writ large? And two, I think it's a false choice. Why can't we empower consumers to make the decisions about health care, and not through consumer boards, but through their purchases and actions in the marketplace. Thank you. Thank you for that question. So I'm going to try to um, respond to both points. So special interest and in why do we need an, an expert board, and can they um, kind of uh, address all the concerns and deal with all the, the very complex issues? And, and secondly, why not just empower consumers and let the market exist as it does? So on the first point, I, I would say that um, experts can, and we have a number, MedPAC is a good example, where they do call a whole lot of in information. Um, and the reason for experts is we want folks who have a background in healthcare economics. Um, we want consumers who have experience and patients who have experienced the, the healthcare system. And it, those types of commissions, MedPAC, and now we have the Medicaid and CHIP Payment and Access Commission have been shown um, to be able to call all the information and come up with reasonable um, recommendations for the Medicare program and, and in the future for the Medicaid and CHIP program. So I do think it is possible, but it, it's already been proven uh, to be possible in terms of that. The other thing I would say about IPAB and how the board structure works, it really is a three-year process. So you have the determination year. So if IPAB is triggered, um, there's a determination year where the CMS actuaries say, look, the, the target has been exceeded. The board um, is triggered. There's also the proposal year. And so, you know, we're building in time for the proposal to be, to be created, the ideas to be thought through, and then the third year would be the year that the proposal comes before Congress. But I would also say to you that 
all of the proposals that this board would be recommending aren't proposals that are being created necessarily from scratch. There are a number of things MedPAC has recommended that we should have been doing, Jay Rockefeller would say, we should have been doing um, before and we haven't done them. And so some of those will, will be part of um, this board. To your second question about empowering consumers, I, we, I do think this board empowers consumers. I, I understand your point about it not um, existing as, as a board and just letting the market forces work, but I would also remind you of that $750 billion fraud, waste, and abuse number. We are in that market system not really working at this point. And so I think that, yes, we can continue to empower consumers, and, and absolutely, we want to do that. Medicare tries to do that now. The board will have yet another mechanism to make sure consumers are involved. But I, I don't think that we can exist, and as Lynn has outlined, in a, an environment where we're just saying, okay, everybody have at it, and there are going to be no, no rules and, and no, no standards for what providers have to do in terms of, of care. Um, if I can add to that, I like experts. I rely on experts to make my shoes. I rely on experts to dry clean my suits. I rely on experts to tell me uh, what's good about this car and what's bad about this car and so forth. So I, I, I'm not opposed to expertise. Uh, I like being able to choose my experts. I think that's what makes um, uh, expertise work for, or what, what makes markets work. What frightens me is, is the idea of empowering one board or one individual expert with the ability to decide how every doctor in the country gets paid, with the ability to decide, uh, did I say what, what how much uh, and, what, and how a, a, a every doctor in the country gets paid, because that's going to affect my medical care and it could affect the medical care I receive in a way that runs very counter to my preferences. It could uh, result in me being den denied services that I would like to receive. So I think the fact that healthcare is special makes it all the more important that we not give any one set of experts that kind of power, that we allow people to choose their experts. Personally, I'd probably sign up with an uh, accountable care organization like Kaiser Permanente if I had the choice, <laughs> um, which is a type of healthcare um, financing and delivery that uh, offers a lot of quality, uh, uh, dimensions of quality that are absent elsewhere in the marketplace precisely because government experts have been encouraging fee-for-service for 40-plus years. <clears throat> I thought we were going to take one last question from the middle, sir. Unless you didn't have a question. Tom, did you have your hand up? <laughs> Just changing up the rules for people. Uh, Ms. Moore, um, <laughs> I came hoping for a debate, so I would like you to actually address uh, some of Michael Cannon's uh, comments uh, that he made that are contrary to the uh, comments that you made in your opening presentation. I think that we're going to have a moment for summation, yeah. and I do intend to do just that. I'm happy to do it now, but I know we have another question, so it's really, I don't know, Laura, is that the, however you'd like for us to proceed? Yeah, I figured um, since we're having lunch afterwards and we're going to talk with the panelists, unfortunately we can't take more questions. I wanted to give each of our panelists a chance to make any last points that were brought up that they didn't get a chance to address with Q&A. And I will start with Jocelyn. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that question. I, I would just say a couple of things. I, I would just remind everyone, again, that it, IPAB is but a tool in a toolbox of quite a number of, of different um, measures that we have implemented to make sure that Medicare quality improves, patient outcomes improve, um, and that we get provider payments uh, under control. Uh, I would say in terms of some of the specific comments that have been raised um, about the constitutionality of 
uh, IPAB, the, the Supreme Court did address the question of the constitutionality of the entire bill and the Affordable Care Act stands. That includes certainly IPAB as a, as a provision of the Affordable Care Act. I would also say in terms of the repeal of um, the legislation, it can be repealed at any point. It, it, is, it is not uh, factual to say that it can't. No Congress can bind another. Congress can decide, and a future Congress can absolutely decide if they would like to repeal um, the Independent Payment Advisory Board. But I would also say that there is a lot of bipartisan support, not only for the idea, but for this board in, in particular. I've talked about the deficit commissions that would strengthen the Independent Payment Advisory Board. Again, Congressman Ryan has two boards that are very similar uh, to the Independent Payment Advisory Board in a proposal that he submitted. So again, I think this idea of repeal, I know that IPAB is a, it seems like a relatively new concept, but as Lynn has mentioned, it's been around for a long time. Uh, the idea of this type of board supported by both Republicans and Democrats. The last thing I would say, just in terms of um, IPAB, is that, you know, again, as part of this, this tool and as part of, well, as a tool and as part of this broader debate about quality improvement and cost containment, um, IPAB is not an island. It's not this thing that just exists out there that isn't part of the larger discussion and a part of the larger debate. And so, you know, there are, there are lots of, of uh, factors that will be taken uh, into account as this board moves forward. But I would just say, let it move forward. Let's see. Like, there are a lot of speculative comments about how the board would would behave, what it would actually do, you know, what the cuts would be, et cetera. Let, let's, let's see what happens. Let's see what the board actually does. $15 billion is but a drop in the bucket compared to the hundreds of billions of dollars that would actually be cut from the Medicare program that would be cost shifted onto seniors if we were to move to a private Medicare system. The, the only last thing I would say is that, Michael, I wanted to say this earlier, your opening comments um, are comments that I could have used in my opening comments about the scope of the problem. So that is something upon which we agree. And IPAB is just one way, one, one suggestion for how we move the ball forward. Thank you. So I would ask you to think about which is more democratic. To fix a dollar amount, give that to seniors in law and fix the growth rate of that dollar amount and have them go forth in the marketplace forever on their own. Or to empower this little creature we call IPAB, which is responsible for coming up with specific proposals that relate to the way we pay providers. And if Congress doesn't like those specific proposals, it can overrule them. The only thing that's really different about this sort of thing versus MedPAC and everything else is the 60 days, because it makes them pay attention. And if they don't do anything, then they go into effect. So it forces action on a problem we all agree is a big problem. I will remind you the members of IPAB have to be confirmed by the Senate, so, and they have limited terms. It's not like we're creating this alien tyranny that will be imposed upon us. They will be probably people everybody in the town already knows because they're going to be people who can be confirmed by construction. They have to be appointed or, or recommended by minority and majority leaders. So whoever controls the Congress, each, of, each minority and minority leader gets three of the so there's going to be a balance has to be every board in who works has a balance and the 
fundamental point is Congress is always sitting there watching what they're doing, as opposed to telling health plans, do you solve the problem? To me, that's hiring and delegating in a way that is totally not democratic. It might work. I think it should be part of the solution going forward to have that option. But why would you turn away a set of tools that could also really help on the fee-for-service side, which is way bigger as a share of our country than managed care at this moment? I'm immeasurably pleased that Jocelyn uh, agrees with me that Medicare has been a failure. Uh, I'm glad that we've. You know, Michael, I would. I'm glad that, that we've been able to bring people together today around that message. Uh, I disagree that the Supreme Court upheld IPAB. The Supreme Court said nothing about IPAB. They only spoke to two issues uh, in uh, uh, in uh, Obamacare, and they actually struck down one of them. Uh, they they found part of the law unconstitutional. It is true that Congress cannot bind a future Congress. Congress cannot tell a future Congress you may not repeal this law. Uh, that's absurd, it's, it's undemocratic, but it's what this statute tries to do. And we haven't heard anything today uh, uh, about that. Um, uh, I think Len was incorrect. He said that uh, uh, IPAB members don't have, uh, have to be confirmed by the Senate. No, they don't. The president, as I mentioned, can recess appoint a secretary of health and human services, and all of IPAB's powers revert to that secretary. In fact, if President Obama wins re-election, Kathleen Sebelius, the secretary of health and human services, does not need to be reconfirmed by the Senate, and so she would assume all of IPAB's considerable powers without ever having been vetted as to whether she's fit to, uh, to wield those powers. So I just think it's interesting that well, we have, I haven't heard from Leonard Jocelyn any comment on that, any comment on... Um, on uh, whether this law, whether the statute attempts to prevent Congress from touching any IPAB proposal after 2019 if it's failed to repeal IPAB. It's true that there, uh, there might be bipartisan support for IPAB. Uh, I don't know, uh, I can't think of any Republicans who still support it. Certainly some Republicans have supported this. Paul Ryan uh, proposed a, uh, a board like IPAB uh, a couple of years ago. He was wrong, and I told him at the time. But the, but the opposition to IPAB is definitely bipartisan. You've got prominent Democrats like former House Majority Leader Richard Gephardt and I believe Barney Frank uh, in opposition to IPAB, partly because IPAB takes power away from Congress. And it's not the case that $15 billion is the, some sort of maximum that IPAB will be able to take out of Medicare. Uh, that's, IPAB can take as much out of Medicare as it wishes. The, uh, and I don't actually think that that is the problem with IPAB. I want to cut Medicare spending. We need to cut Medicare spending. The problem with IPAB is that it's a super legislature that tries to do that without the consent of the governed, and it's unconstitutional uh, uh, and authoritarian for that reason. Great. Well, we'd love to invite you to join us for lunch and talk with our panelists about all the questions that we unfortunately could not get to. Lunch is held on the second floor right up the spiral staircase in the George Eager Conference Center. And I'd like to thank you all for coming in. Please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you.